from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview for everything important on planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff in the world of video games, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere, but find out, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here, then we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the I'm on summer break, baby! Woo! Uh, yeah, it's a really nice time of the year, because I just got done with crazy amounts of paper grading and getting all the grades into the computer and students coming running in at the last minute. Can I still pass? What do I need to do? Oh, I didn't ask any questions or take any notes or do any of the work, but I still need to pass in order to graduate. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's very hectic at the end of the year, and I know that people get mad at me now because, oh, you don't have, have to work for three months, and I'm not going to lie, it's very nice, and I'm very privileged to have a three-month vacation. As I've said elsewhere, I feel like I do 12 months full of work and nine months of school, but whatever. Um, yeah, woo, summer. Um, the recall happened, and Scott Walker won, and that sucks, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um... I, I was thinking about the economy recently, and I think one of the reasons, perhaps, that I follow economics so closely is because it's easy for me to can't be cantankerous and self-righteous about it, whereas other domains require a little more nuance, and maybe they sometimes offer less hope. And I also, I mean, I'm a structuralist, okay, so I believe that the economics is the foundation for most of what happens in the rest of society, which isn't to say that, you know, other things don't matter, race, gender, you know, sociology, and things like that, but I think that, you know, if we were to look at race, for instance, without economic disparities, racial discrimination and, and racism would be much less onerous. And same is true about gender inequality and, and all the rest of it. Um, it's not to say it's the totality of it, but I believe that economics is at the heart of a lot of the problems that we face. And uh, so that's that's probably one of the reasons. But But I do feel like economics is one of those things I can really... I feel like I can get my brain around it to a degree, and it's obviously very important. And uh, so, yeah... That I don't I don't know why that's relevant to start the show with, but you know it was on my mind, so I put it down in the notes. Uh yeah, the week the re the week call happened, and it was a thing to happen, and, and it made me very sad. I shouldn't make fun of people who talk like that. I just happened to say the thing wrong, so I figured I'd go with it. You know, just kind of roll on with a kind of silly way of talking. Why not? For those who don't know, we have a jerk for a governor here in Wisconsin, and uh, one of the first things he did when he got into office was to announce the almost total dissolution of public unions, which cover, uh, well, he excluded police and firefighters from it, but, you know, nurses and uh, teachers were the most, uh, largest groups of people affected. And as a teacher, obviously that means I'm affected. And uh, the the state federation of school board executives issued a statement that the head of that group said early on in the process they did not want 
this to happen. And Scott Walker was saying, oh, this is what school boards need and they, what they've asked for in order to you know, have more flexibility and cut budgets. Well, there's going to be cutting of budgets. There's no doubt about it. But the main thing that's going to happen, I think, is uh, instability, uncertainty, and fear among a lot of teachers about what's going to happen next. And we can get fired for, uh, you know, much more capricious reasons now. Whereas in the past, our contracts all said there's this process that schools have to go to in order uh, to get rid of a teacher. Now they have a lot more uh, ability to just say, first of all, here's all this other stuff you need to do because what are you going to do about it, right? Uh, and if you don't if you don't do what we want, then we can get rid of you, and we don't need all the reasons we might have needed in the past. Now some people have said that. All of those protections have kept bad teachers in the classroom. And I have some sympathy for that point of view. We talked about a New York Times article here recently which talked about the mediator in New York City who you know, has to try to sort through what happened in accusations, for instance, of sexual harassment or whatever it is. And the last thing I want to see as a teacher is bad teachers. And I, I know some people who are mediocre and they probably shouldn't be doing this job because they're not doing it very well. But I, I feel like there ought to be a middle ground between absolutely no... Uh, protections against capricious firing and on the one hand and uh, you know no response to bad teaching on the other there's a middle ground there and it includes unions because we workers need to have some say in our workplace and I know that a lot of private sector workers aren't covered by unions anymore and that's wrong too because uh, and this isn't about individuals I'm blessed to work in a magnificent school district the administration that I work with is fantastic the school board is very very good the district administration is excellent and I feel like I'm very blessed to be in those circumstances, but it's not about the individuals involved or even, you know, which particular group I'm working with or under. It's about this is what management tends to do is they tend to push things as far as they can. And if there's no countervailing institution like a union to resist that push, then management just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And the whole reason we had unions to begin with once upon a time was because people were sick of seeing children working in factories and never having time off for going to church or whatever it is. And I hate to say it, but in the United States, we currently have, what, maybe 12% unionization? In the pr public sector, it's probably like 20%. And it's going to have to get less and less, and people are going to end up in situations once again where they're working 80-hour weeks. And I know people who, by the way, currently are working 80-hour weeks. And that sucks. It's a violation of their human right. Article 24 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says every human being is entitled to the right to leisure. And, and, and that should be something we demand from the world as working people. And if we demanded it, we would get it. But we haven't demanded it lately because we've, believed, we've, we've, we've accepted this myth that says that unions don't do anything for workers and they just get in the way of the economy and we, and we shouldn't punish success. And I keep hearing this drumbeat and it just seems to be more and more pervasive everywhere I look. And maybe I'm just spending a lot of my time lately talking to people about you know, this stuff, and I'm coming into contact with all these free market fundamentalists who just say, like, oh, everything should be privatized, and people, you know, people should all be judged on the, the, the sweat of their brow, and there's this idea that there's this meritocracy, and anybody who works hard will do just fine in our society. Well, I'm sorry, I'm here to say that that's not the way it works. Lots of people work hard all the time, and they never get ahead, because our system, as the uh, Occupy Wall Street sign says, the system isn't broken, it's fixed. 
Uh, so yeah, the recall happened and, and Scott Walker won. And now everybody's saying, oh, this means it's the death of unions and it's all over for the left. And there, the people of Wisconsin have spoken with one voice. And to be honest, I don't know what I would say about what this means in terms of what the people of Wisconsin want. The main thing I saw was people saying, oh, okay. I saw a number of things. There were people who said, we stand with Scott Walker because we hate the fact that property taxes were going to go up if he didn't balance the budget. Okay. I respect that. There are people who say, um, now we could talk about why, look, here's the point. Here's my response to that argument. If you think that property taxes shouldn't go up, uh, well, I hate to tell you this, schools have to be paid for. Okay. And one of the things we're going to see in the coming years in Wisconsin is a decrease in the quality of our schools, which have been good. And people complain, oh, uh, property taxes are higher than the national average in Wisconsin. Yeah. You know what else is higher than the national average? Our students' test scores, okay? Our students in Wisconsin generally do very well compared to the national average. And maybe I'm a psychopath uh, conspiracy nut if I believe that that is somehow connected to the high property taxes. Because if you want good schools, you have to pay for them. And right now, we pay for our schools through property taxes. And if you want to change that system, I'm all ears. I think maybe we should change that system. My point is that uh, taxes are high for a reason. We get things for our taxes, or we're supposed to. Now, we don't always get a good return on our tax investment, but that's the theory. Good roads, uh, you know, uh, good fire departments, policing, uh, libraries, museums, etc. These are the schools. These are the things that our taxes supposedly pay for. And uh, yeah, so we have to pay for them. Because if we want to go privatize, that's just going to be a nightmare. We used to have privatized fire departments in this country. It was a nightmare. If your house didn't have the little badge of the local fire department, then they would drive right by and let your house burn. That's a bad idea. Anyway, um, so there, that's one camp. Another camp said, you know, the angry people like me were Scott Walker violated the trust. He didn't campaign on this bashing public unions thing and stripping us all of our rights. And he way overstepped his boundaries. He he had an egregious abuse of power. And that's why he needed to be recalled and taken out of office. Uh, and those two camps uh, were, I think, roughly the same size. I think probably the we want to balance the budget group is probably a little smaller, but they had a, they had twice as much super PAC money as the people on the left did. But there's another group in the middle who said, I might not like Scott Walker, but I don't agree with the idea of recalling him because it was very expensive and it was it was in the middle of his term and, and you can't try to get someone out of office just because you don't like what they did. And I have respect for that too. I think they're wrong in this case. But I, I, I again, I don't think that that group of people can be used, which I think was a large group of people in Wisconsin. I don't think they can be used to bash unions and say, oh, it's all over for public unions and the people of Wisconsin have spoken with one voice. They all agree with Scott Walker and blah, 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 blah. That's not a fair way to look at it. And as always, I think that elections bring about people who are voting for a wide variety of reasons. And I hate seeing people on the news going on and on about, well, this is what this election means. If nothing else, this election proves blank. And people on the left have one simple answer for what this election means, and people on the right have one simple answer for what this election means. But it's never that simple. I'm sorry. Human affairs are vastly complicated uh, enterprises, and we can't reduce them to just one thing, especially when there's millions and millions and millions of people who are voting on issues. Um, now, that said, the Democrats suck, especially in Wisconsin. They couldn't campaign their way out of a wet paper bag. And I also blame Russ Feingold because he could have run, man, and he didn't. And I said at the time, when he chose not to run, I said, if we lose, I'm blaming Russ Feingold. So we lost, and I'm blaming Russ Feingold. Not really. Uh, I respect him for wanting to be out of office for a while. I mean, dude, that would crush anybody's spirit. 
Um, yeah, so whatever. Uh, we'll see. Like I've said, the next few years might not be pleasant, but they sure ain't going to be boring. That's what Jello Biafra said. And now it's time for current events. No Let's get off this recall thing. First up in current events, Wisconsin's dangerous result. More recall stuff. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, and it said, uh, the left will make a big mistake if it ignores the lessons of the failed recall in Wisconsin of Governor Scott Walker. And I, this is an opinion piece, I think. So let me get the name of the person who wrote it. Yes, E.J. Dion Jr., uh, who is, let's see, at the bottom it probably has something about who he is. Nope. Just some guy working for the Washington Post. I guess he's a columnist. I don't know. Whatever. Some old white guy. Um, yeah. The right will make an even bigger error if it allows the Wisconsin results to feed its inclination toward winner-take-all politics. The danger on the right is greater because winning an epic fight is a heady experience, and conservatives can claim a real victory here. Now, let me jump in here and say that people are talking about, this is a landslide. There's a, it's a huge margin. I'm sorry. It was something like 54 to 46. Now, that's significant. It's a definitive win for Walker. I'm not going to lie, but that's not a huge margin. I'm sorry, if it's less than 10 points, that's not huge. I don't consider that a landslide, okay? 70 to 30 is a landslide, okay? 90 to 10, that's a huge margin. Eight points is not huge. I hate to tell you. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so this guy goes on. He won decisively, and it turns out that a majority of Wisconsin voters, including many who voted against Walker, simply didn't like the idea of a recall, which is exactly what I'm saying. So it must be true. Now, this idea of winner-take-all politics, by the way, I should point out is um, something that uh, George Washington often uh, said that we shouldn't uh, allow. And in fact, George Washington was against, and for those who don't know... Uh, do I really need to say who George Washington was? I guess people in the UK might not know. George Washington was the first president of the United States. He's a very influential general during the U.S. War of Revolutionary Independence. Um, yeah, he. so he said that um, the, the whole party system is dangerous. And he said in his uh, farewell address in, what year was it? Uh, 1796. He said... Uh, the alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, in which, which in different ages and countries has perpetuated, uh, perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here in Wisconsin. Because, and it's not just Wisconsin, it's all over the country. And now the governor of, I think, Indiana said, yeah, we ought to get rid of public unions too. Wisconsin has the right idea and the people of the state like it. And, and they're wrong and it's stupid and I hope they have better luck in Indiana than we did in Wisconsin. And obviously this fight's not over. Walker said, oh, it's time for us to stop fighting. I'm sorry. I go John Paul Jones style, okay? He was told to surrender when his ship was sinking. And he goes, I have not yet begun to fight. And that's exactly how I feel. So, um, yeah. But, you know, this notion, that it's all over the United States and probably around the world, too. This notion that, like, if one party wins an election, it's like, well, here's a landslide for us, and now we're in charge. We get to do whatever we want. Well, the Democrats don't do that, because Democrats always have this idea of, we're just going to work with the other side, and, and Clinton got into office, and it, let's be friends, and maybe we can work something out. What do you think, guys? Is that cool with you? And Gingrich and, and all the Republican leaders in the mid-'90s said, no, you suck. We hate you. And Clinton went, okay, I'll show you that I'm, like, tough on crime and tough on welfare mothers with starving children. Take that, welfare mothers. And then the Republicans said, you're a socialist! And it, it becomes this ludicrous race to the right. 
Um, but when the Republicans get into office, they just do whatever the hell they want, and they go, we're in charge, nobody can stop us, we have a, a, a veto-proof majority, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's not healthy for a democracy. I'm sorry. That, and I'm glad Democrats don't have that attitude of like, we can do whatever we want, no one can stop us. But they do need to spine up a little bit and say, like, here's what we need. And, for instance, when Obama, I know I'm repeating myself, those people who listen to this regularly, get on to the next story, please. Hang on, I'm getting there. Just calm down, everybody, all right? Probably banging on your iPods in frustration. Move on, move on. No. When Obama started out with the health care reform movement attempt thing, he started off by saying, we're taking single payer off the table. That was how they started the discussion. It's lunacy. It's like if you're having an auction and the person says, all right, what am I bid for this thing? And the person in the audience goes, two cents. And the person, the auctioneer went, uh, how, about, how about one cent? Like you go down from where the person starts. No, that's stupid. You st- the auctioneer starts the betting. Who wants to bid $500 for this thing? And then on the Simpsons, Patty goes, 40 cents, 40 cents. Anyway, uh, that was Krusty the Clown was the second echo of that because his uh, uncle, I think, died in that suitcase. or I don't remember what it is. All right, anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, so Investors.com had a thing. I think this is Investors Business Daily. Uh, the headline was, Union Rights? Wisconsin Dem Recall Silence Speaks Volumes. Polls show Walker ahead and his reforms narrowly popular. Should he win Tuesday, efforts to restrain public unions in other states will get a second win. And we are seeing that now, of course. Governors forced to balance tight budgets may follow Walker's lead. Quote, they will see they have they uh, they will see they will have to endure a lot of noise and pressure from unions, but that in the end they will prevail, said Vincent Vernuccio, labor policy analyst with the Free Market Competitive Enterprise Institute. So now we're seeing the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the American Enterprise Institute and a um, Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, all these conservative think tanks are all of a sudden, go, I mean, not all of a sudden, they've been doing this for a while, but this is more wind in their sails going, eh, unions are obsolete, nobody can, nobody can stop us, we can crush all the unions. And it looks like a lot, again, the, the real sadness for me isn't that people with a lot of money and power are pushing an agenda that says unions are unnecessary. That always happens, and that has always happened. The thing that's sad is that it works, and that a lot of working class people accept that line, and they go, oh yeah, well, you know, everyone on the news is saying that unions are just bloated and inefficient, and they're the reason why I'm not getting paid as much as I deserve, and there's not a true meritocracy because unions are protecting bad workers. And and it's it's rubbish, you know. Okay, so it's only ninety percent rubbish. Fine, maybe there's ten percent truth in that. But it's just so sad to see working people. And I came up with a way of describing this one time, and I put it in this file back here. Let me see if I can find. It. Hey, I have it. Here it is. Okay, I, this is a great way of wording. I'm gonna make a bumper sticker out of this someday. You ready? This is this is inspired. <clears throat> those who have everything get those who have nothing to hate those who have something, so that we don't change anything. Um, yeah, speaking of the Walker victory, Sarah Palin started immediately running her mouth about what this means. The LA Times had an article that said, Palin relishes Walker victory over Wisconsin Union thugs. She called them thugs. Talking about the leadership of the unions in Wisconsin. She said, I think Wisconsin voters are sick and tired of the division that's been caused by the radical left, saying it's big government growth that's going to be the answer to economic challenges. 
Uh, this vote embracing austerity and fiscal responsibility is the complete opposite of what President Obama and the White House represents today. Well, Wisconsin wasn't going to put up with that. The rest of the nation won't put up with that. He had to stay away. Maybe it's the union leadership, said Palin. Those thugs who wanted to deceive their members into believing that growing government was the answer. Well, perhaps it's those union leaders who need to be recalled and replaced with those who understand what perhaps a union role could be in state government. Not a selfish role, not a role that allows government to continue to grow and create an insolvent situation for a state. Shut up, Sarah Palin. You don't know what you're talking about, okay? You've never been a teacher. You have no idea why unions are important for teachers. Once again, she's running them out. She has no idea what she's talking about. And, and it matters. What she says matters. So, you know, because she's representing a mind view. A mind view? Is that a thing? No, there's no such thing as a mind view. Mind state world view. One of those. Uh, that is reflected by the Republicans. And now Mitt Romney said recently about Obama in the next story, he, Obama wants another stimulus. He wants to hire more government workers. He says we need more firemen, more policemen, more teachers. Did he not get the message of Wisconsin? The American people did. It's time for us to cut back on government and help the American people. Yeah, the last thing we need is more firemen. Because God knows we have way too many firemen sitting around, never putting out fires, never saving people from burning buildings. God, all these big government advocates and their demands for firemen and teachers. I mean, look, it's weird for me to comment on whether or not teachers are important because I'm a teacher. There's a conflict of interest. I recognize that. Unlike Clarence Thomas, who reckon, doesn't recognize there's a conflict of interest when he ruled on Citizens United because like, he or his wife had like millions of dollars invested in some group. I don't know the details. Look them up. Um, but, but teachers? Really? Like, you're going after teachers. Teachers are the problem. Because, you know, yeah, we caused the 2008 economic disaster that's caused, that, that's, that's the reason, well, it's one of the reasons why Wisconsin's budget is in the toilet, not to mention all the big business giveaways that Scott Walker oversaw. It's just crazy. <sighs> all right, let's talk about something else. Uh, in Cairo, Egypt, uh, there was a protest that took place uh, where a bunch of women were protesting sexual violence and a mob of angry men started sexually assaulting them. Here's the article. Uh, it's from the CBC in Canada. Um, a mob of hundreds of men assaulted women holding a march demanding an end to sexual harassment Friday with the attackers overwhelming the male guardians and groping and molesting several of the female marchers in Cairo's Tahrir Square. From the ferocity of the assault, some of the victims said it appeared to have been an organized attempt to drive women out of demonstrations and trample on the pro-democracy protest movement. Earlier in the week, an Associated Press reporter witnessed around 200 men assault a woman who eventually fainted before men trying to help could reach her. So obviously this is horrifying and disgusting, uh, and it goes to show, I think, the the versatile and, and dynamic nature of the democracy movement in Egypt, because the, the, the narrative we're getting from a, a lot of the press, I think, is Muslim Brotherhood going to institute an Iran-like, uh, you know, theocracy in Egypt, and... I mean, that's possible, I suppose, but, but there is a very vibrant grassroots movement for change in Egypt that is taking a lot of different forms, just like it tends to happen whenever you have democratic movement in any place. There tend to be a lot of different groups coming out and saying, we should make this change, we should make that change, and that's a good thing. Now, this is divorced now from Egypt because I have nothing to say about this particular story. I think it's horrible and disgusting and hideous and wrong. Now, let me say this. 
about those different forms of movement that take place whenever you have democratic fervent. And we saw it in Wisconsin last year. Uh, the main focus of the anger was at Scott Walker for overstepping his bounds and trying to destroy the public unions. But there were a lot of other people who said, there's this reason to hate Scott Walker. There's that reason to hate Scott Walker. And as Diane has pointed out, the Democrats really missed the trick by not taking hold of that fervor. Instead, they, they really hammered home one or two points uh, that were very milk toast and lukewarm, and, and they really failed to take hold of that Democratic insurgency that we saw in Wisconsin. You know, it was considered an uprising by a lot of the people who were here, and the Democrats really dropped the ball on translating that energy into political activity. And so, for instance, when I went canvassing for the Barrett campaign, it was the guy running against Walker, I... I went in, and they, they sat us down, and they gave us a script. And they said, here is the script. Stick to the script. It's like on The Simpsons. Stick to the script as written, Homer. It, they, they kept saying, it's been focus grouped. It's been focus grouped. This is this is scientifically proven to get people out to the polls. And, I you know, there were things about, like, looks, a lot of, look, look, looks like a lot of people in your neighborhood are going to be voting on Tuesday. And, and when do you think you're going to be voting? And getting them to you know specify when they're going to go, that solidifies it in their own mind. I understand that. I do that with my students. Okay, fine. But the, but the, but the idea that it's all about focus groups and, and that it was mostly about collecting data so that in the future campaigns, the Democrats could go and you know expand upon that data and, and add more people to their roles and hopefully get a few more votes that way. That was disgusting to me. I wasn't in this for some sort of focus grouped uh, long-term data collection effort. I was there to try to kick a scumbag out of office, and and they didn't seem to appreciate that, and uh, that's why I think that broad-based movement for change is what's really going to get us somewhere valuable, rather than, uh, you know, some sort of weak political party maneuvering. Now, that said, I do recognize that the more elements you have in the equation trying to push and shove in different directions, the harder it is to move a society in one particular way, which was the glory of the civil rights movement, of course, is that it got people together and said, here's the change we need to make. Let's do it. And people focused on one goal. And uh, that's why, you know, having a goal is very important. And Scott Ritter put out a book, put out a book called Waging Peace, which was all about how fractured the anti-war movement was in the lead up to the most recent Iraq war. And I, I think that's a good point. Um, and it's goddamn shame Scott Ritter has turned into some sort of, well, I guess he hasn't turned in. He's always been, go away, stupid planes flying over my house. It's the man. He knows that I'm putting out the truth to you listeners. This is three dog. Um, sorry, these planes go over our house on a regular basis. It's really annoying. Anyway, what was I saying? I don't know. Let's move on. Ray Bradbury died. Oh, man. Uh, I was never the hugest Ray Bradbury fan in the world. I've only read a few short stories by him. I don't think I've ever read a Ray Bradbury novel, which is, I know, a disgrace, right? Not even Fahrenheit 51, which, duh, you read that when you're six years old, don't you? Well, I didn't. Um, so, yeah, he was a cool writer, though. I mean, the stories I read were great, and, every, you know, quotes I heard from him, interviews and stuff, they were always really spot on. Um, but he was mad at Michael Moore for using Fahrenheit 9-11, but whatever, get over yourself, Ray Bradbury. Uh... But it's sad that he died, but he was like 91 or something, so he had a good life. He did a lot of great work, and he has a good legacy to live on, including a digital copy of the Martian Chronicles, which is on Mars, apparently. Uh, this is an article from CBS News in the United States, and it says, Near the North Pole of Mars, a piece of Ray Bradbury lives on, waiting to be discovered by someone in the future. A digital copy of Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, along with works by other science fiction legends, was flown into space in 2007 by NASA's Phoenix spacecraft, which 
which touched down on the Martian Arctic plains. The Planetary Society wanted to put a time capsule on the Red Planet for future human explorers and sought permission from Bradbury to include his futuristic novel on a mini-DVD containing Mars-themed literature, art, and music, and the names of 250,000 Earthlings. Soon after the landing in 2008, Phoenix snapped a picture of its deck, showing the disc next to an American flag. The spacecraft operated for five months before freezing to death. I want two questions answered, and I've tried to find out, and I can't find out. What other science fiction materials were part of that drop? And which 250,000 Earthlings' names are up there on Mars? And how are they chosen? These things I want to know because of reasons. Um, yeah. I think that'd be very interesting. Now, if you don't know about uh, SETI, by the way, this isn't really related, but sort of. Uh, there was this message that we sent out a long time ago called the Arecibo message, and it was it was an attempt to say to the universe, hey, here's who we are, here's where we are in the universe, here's you know uh, how we count, and, and here's what our DNA looks like, and all this other stuff. And uh, we sent it out into the, the, the ether, and uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, I think, to know that that's out there waiting for some other life form to read and contact us with a response. Um, I think Contact's a good movie, and I know it's cheesy, I know it's cheesy, I know it's cheesy, it's a cheesy movie, but I think it's also beautiful in some ways, and it's not about aliens want to destroy us for no reason, which is rare in Hollywood, so whatever. Anyway, moving on. Um... There was an article about the Chinese stock index, which I'm not going to put in the economics section because it's actually about politics. Uh, the uh, This is from the Sydney Morning Herald. The, the headline is Chinese stock index invokes Tiananmen. And as you probably know, the Chinese government has a death grip on the Internet in China. And the, the search engines are all run by the government, and you can't access information through Google. or I mean, you can sort of do it, but it's got all these filters that they don't exist in the United States. And information about the massacre that happened in 1989 in Tiananmen Square is impossible to find in China. So most people in China have no idea about what happened there. Kind of like how most people in the United States have no idea about, you know, the massacre in Fallujah or, you know, Haditha or whatever. Uh, you know, most people in a country that commits an atrocity don't know about that atrocity. That's the way it works, right? Now, it's different in China because there's an explicit government censorship program, whereas in the United States, we just don't want to know about it. So it's sort of a passive, uh, willful ignorance of the population rather than an express plan by the government to try to censor me and everyone else who speaks the truth. I couldn't do this in China, man. I know I'm lucky to be in the United States and have this freedom of speech and everything. Don't ever get it twisted. I recognize how blessed I am. Anyway, um, yeah, so here's the article. China's share benchmark has fallen foul of the country's internet censors by appearing to mark the 23rd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown on pro-democracy protesters. Now, I have no idea what Chinese stock index share benchmark means, but whatever. Uh, in an unlikely coincidence, certainly unwelcome to China's communist rulers, the stock benchmark fell 64.89 points on Monday, matching the numbers of the June 4th, 1989 crackdown in the heart of Beijing, 64.89. 6, June 4th, 89. Isn't that interesting? In another odd twist, the index opened Monday at 2,346.98. That is being interpreted as 23rd anniversary of the June 4th, 1989 crackdown when read from right to left. On the popular Sina microblog site, searches using June 4th, 64.89 stock market and benchmark Shanghai composite index were all blocked. So... That's an interesting look at how it's not even, you know, 
it, it's not explicitly about the Tiananmen massacre, but that was information was blocked because the numbers happened to coincide with this thing that happened. Dude, that's freaky. That just blow your mind. Respect my ego to check notch. Bam, pull from the gate now. Fast moves everything around me. Green, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. All right, let's talk about some economics. First up, uh, Steve Keen is an Australian economist, and he had a really good interview on uh, the London School of Economics, which was featured on the BBC Analysis Program. I'll put a link in the show notes. It'll be one of the top three of the week. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really good talk because he was one of the people who uh, apparently like foresaw the 2008 economic crash happening uh, before it happened. And... Um, yeah, it, he has a lot of really good things to say, including one, one line he gave that was really good was, an economy can be run without economists. A bridge cannot be built without engineers. And his whole point, which is one that I have a lot of sympathy for, is that um, the financial sector used to support engineers and industry, people who were making important things. Now, the financial sector is the masters of those other groups, and the financial sector says, here's what you need to do, i.e. make very complex algorithms that allow us to do high-frequency high trading and all these derivatives and the rest of it, um, and that's messed up, and we should change that, which, duh, yeah, okay. So I recommend that you listen to the Steve Keen talk in the interview. Uh, there's some good interaction with the audience. There's one guy there who was a banker, and uh, he said that Steve Keen was like, I used to work in finance, um, so it's just a very interesting perspective. I encourage you to take a listen. There's a lot of stuff in it I don't really understand because he's getting into some kind of technical economic stuff because he's talking to other economists. So, you know, they get together and talk in a language that's hard for people not in the in the industry to follow. Just as if you were to see me getting together with my teacher friends, we'd be talking about core standards and lots of other stuff that might be hard for other people to fall out. Um, so yeah, in Europe, uh, things are getting bad and I wish I had more helpful things to say about what's going on there, but I really don't feel like I have a good handle on it. So I'm not a good source for that, which is not something you'll hear in a lot of news sources, right? But there was a very interesting article from the Telegraph. Uh, the headline was Spain bailout reaction. This is a rescue quote. This is a rescue for the rich. The poor will only get poorer. And it starts like this. Mobs of angry citizens storming branches of banks, banging saucepans and chanting slogans in noisy protests at the plan to rescue Spain's most stricken banking entity while the population suffers deep austerity measures and struggles against disappearing credit lines. And I would point out, this is exactly the same thing that's happening in the United States, except we don't have mobs of angry citizens storming bank branches. I mean, we have some protesters doing that, and we saw people doing that in Wisconsin when the Koch brothers were revealed to be part of U.S. Bank or Bank, whatever the hell a bank's called. And, um, yeah, in some other places, there were groups of people who were angry, but it wasn't a mob, and they weren't, or, you know, it wasn't a lot of middle-class people, and that's, I think, the tipping point. We saw in Argentina in the 90s that there were middle-class people coming out in the streets, banging on pots and pans, saying, we demand, you know, some sort of fair treatment from the government. The banks are getting bailed out. People never do. And, unfortunately, in the United States, that's taken a very weird turn with the Tea Party, because the Tea Party is a group of people who are convinced that it's not the, the problem that the banks are being bailed out and the people aren't. It's a problem that anybody's getting any help at all. And and they have this weird idea that if if nobody got any help, we would be in a much better place right now, which is just insane. What, you would have people eating each other in the streets. You'd have, like, cannibalism and, and, and weird, like, head-slashing contests and just, I mean, you'd have bum fights on every corner in order for people to feed their kids. It's ridiculous. That's not civilization. 
Anyway, the article continues. Uh, but as Spaniards woke up today to the news that the EU had given their banks a lifeline of up to 100 billion euros, there was optimism that at last something had been done to stop the rot. Quote, later on in the article, quote, uh, why, could th why should they rescue the banks when our children are starving, screamed one placard outside a Banquilla branch in Madrid's Plaza de Selenque during a protest at the weekend. Many protesters have already lost their homes due to foreclosures and complain of the generosity toward the banking system while they are left without aid. Spaniards are slamming the impunity of the bankers as details of payoffs to former senior executives further enrage those struggling to pay their bills and suffering deep cuts in public spending. Which, again, exactly the same thing that happened here, but there's no anger at the impunity of bankers. And, by the way, the dude who made the movie Inside Job, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Film last year, he wrote a new book called Predator Nation, and he uh, recently appeared on the Tavis Smiley and uh, and uh, Democracy Now! talking about his new book, Predator Nation. I've ordered it. I haven't read it yet, but it looks really interesting because, as Tavis Smiley puts it, he has gone through and made very clear what the evidence is for fraud convictions for these Wall Street scumbags who need to be in prison. And every time I have conversations with people, they're like, oh, who committed crimes? Where was their violation of the law? The problem is, and this is what Obama said, Obama said, the problem is that the law isn't there. We can't persecute anybody. Prosecute anybody. Uh, but that's not true, according to this guy. So I'm very interested to see the information about... Um, who actually broke the law, and, and I, I want to be able to say, this person broke the law, this is what happened, and this person needs to go to jail, because I can't do that right now. Um, meanwhile, okay, let's talk about high-frequency trading. Let's be honest. This is what people really tune in to hear about in terms of the economy. Yeah, 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 whatever. Austerity sucks. Boo-hoo. Get to the high-frequency trading, because this is the lunatics. Here's the latest lunatic thing. Hi, where is this from? This is from NewYorkConvergence.com. Who knows what that is? Uh, High-frequency traders' sites set on microwave dishes. This is the new thing. It's not neutrinos anymore. It's not shark-infested cables down and with robots fighting off stuff. Uh, now it's microwave dishes. Quote, this is from the article now. Trading firms are racing to build groups of microwave dishes to generate higher speed links between financial markets in Chicago and New York, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. A majority of telecom traffic will have to travel between these regions, and the cell phone towers that run along the roads and highways here are the main sites for a telecom boom. The owners of cell towers, such as Tower Co. LLC, have the opportunity to make immense profits on these properties. And, interjecting now, um, here's the thing. Uh, that frontline thing about the cell phones, the guys who fall off these cell phone towers, it's all about how fast they're being constructed and how fast we need people working on them. And so safety slows down the speed of construction and maintenance. That's the way it is. So when speed becomes the number one priority, safety takes a back seat and people die. And that's one of the things that really disturbs me about this notion that, oh, here come these towers. We're going to put microwave dishes on them and we'll speed up trading now. Because the more, again, the more you have that need for speed, that, that lust for increased speed, the, the less safety is going to matter and the more people are going to die from accidents that could have been prevented. Uh, back to the article. The emerging microwave signals threaten to undercut the profits from fiber optics. Microwave networks can travel faster than fiber optic cables in some cases, and because cell towers are tall enough, they have become top locations for microwave dishes. And I can totally see a point in the future where the people who make the mic, who, who like rent the, or lease out the microwave bandwidth or whatever, they go, yeah, microwaves are better than fiber optics. And the people who have the fiber optic cables are like, shut up, microwaves suck. And they go, uh-uh, at least microwave dishes aren't susceptible to 
being cut and then they get down there with a knife and they cut the fiber optics cable and the guy in the fiber optics firm is like oh yeah well you suck and then he takes a bazooka and shoots down the the microwave dish and then they start punching each other in the face and, yeah you suck you suck um meanwhile business week had an interesting opinion piece that said what if speed traders competed on price because right now the whole thing about high frequency trading is we can make a little bit of money by being a little faster right but as they point out, uh, one former high-frequency trader has a proposal to slow things down. Chris Stuccio, a math PhD who spent a few years working at a New Jersey high-frequency trading firm, argues that if stocks were allowed to be priced in increments below one penny, which apparently right now they are not, high-frequency trading firms would have to compete not just on speed but on price as well. According to Stuccio, the benefits would be twofold. Quote, Trading for retail investors would be cheaper and the profits of high-frequency trading firms would be reduced, he says. Making high-frequency trading less profitable would be a good thing, Stuccio believes, because it would encourage a bunch of smart people to leave the industry and do something of greater social use, like making the Internet itself a whole lot faster. It's an interesting theory, but Ben Van Vliet, a professor at Illinois Institute of Technology and an expert on high-frequency trading, believes sub-penny pricing would put an even greater premium on speed. When the SEC reduced the pricing increments, or spreads, from 12.5 cents to a penny in 2000, speed became more important, he says, adding, quote, I don't see why it would be any different this time around. So... I'd like to hear more about this, and I'd like to hear anything that will slow down these high-frequency nutcases, because eventually it's just going to get to an insane point where I don't even know where it would end. I mean, I actually have started to believe that it'll never end, and I'm starting to wonder if this lust for profit will ever see a limit, but whatever. Um, we got to move on. We're only... For 40 minutes in, we're not even done with half the, the show yet. The skills gap myth. This was an interesting thing in the Time business section of Time magazine. Uh, some of the most puzzling stories to come out of the Great Recession are the many claims by employers that they cannot find qualified applicants to fill their jobs, despite the millions of unemployed who are seeking work. Beyond the anecdotes themselves, the survey evidence, most recently from Manpower, which was a temporary employment firm, you go in, you don't get any benefits, you don't even have a job maybe after one day, but they'll give you a job for that one day, so a lot of people don't have a lot of choice, uh, which finds roughly half of employers reporting troubling reporting trouble filling their vacancies. And by the way, this is written by a guy named Peter Capelli. And who is he? He's a professor of management and director of Wharton Center for Human Resources. He was previously co-director of the National Center on the Educational Equality of the Workforce for the U.S. Department of Education. This article was adapted from his new book, Why Good People Can't Get Jobs, The Skills Gap, and What Companies Can Do About It. Uh, continuing with the article, the first thing that makes me wonder about the supposed skill gap is that, when pressed for more evidence, roughly 10% of employers admit that the problem is really that the candidates they want won't accept the positions at the wage level being offered. That's not a skill shortage. It's simply being unwilling to pay the going price. Later in the article, employers are not looking to hire entry-level applicants right out of school. They want experienced candidates who can contribute immediately with no training or startup time. Later in the article, one of my favorite examples of the absurdity of this requirement was a job advertisement for a cotton candy machine operator, not a high-skilled job, which required that applicants, quote, demonstrate prior success in operating cotton candy machines. Now that's lunacy right there, and, and this is indicative of the American uh, attitude in general. You should have prior experience with this, we're not going to train you at all. And it's the idea that, you know, it's the meritocracy if you really want it. And this is where we get these unpaid internships that are such a scam, and they're robbing young workers of all their wealth, because they're putting in years of work sometimes for no money, but just for college credit. 
And it's it's this lunatic thing. And, and there's this guy who wrote Friday Night Lights was talking about the same thing basically happening in college sports because we're the only country in the world that has sports tied up with college education. And you have a lot of people who are bringing great wealth into these universities, but they're not getting any of it themselves. And, and they're being treated like, you know, thoroughbreds. And then they break a leg or something, and that's it. That's the end of their career that never really began. And what can they do? Nothing. So anyway, um, yeah, skills gap, not really. Uh, and then finally, there's a thing from Jer- uh, Jeffrey Sachs, Jeremy Sachs. What's his name? The guy who wrote The End of Poverty. This was on Economy Watch, where he is a regular contributor. And it's trying to redirect, but it's taken forever. There we go. Jeffrey Sachs, yes. Uh, he's a professor of economics and director of the Earth Institute of Columbia University, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he had a piece called Why Foreign Aid Skeptics Are Wrong. And we hear this a lot. People are like, foreign aid does nothing. There's so much corruption, it can't achieve anything. People, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says flat out, the critics of foreign aid are wrong. A growing flood of data shows that death rates in many poor countries are falling sharply and that aid-supported programs for healthcare delivery have played a key role. Aid works. It saves lives. Period. End of discussion. Let's talk education. Jeb Bush offers praise for Obama's education policy. Stop right there. I hate it. Mao said, uh, anything the enemy is for, we are against, and anything the enemy is against, we are for. And I try not to see the world in such a black and white way. Only the Sith think in absolutes. But every time I hear Jeb Bush likes this thing, I think, I probably don't like that thing. And 95% of the time, I'm right. So anyway, the brother of Mr. Obama's predecessor noted that missed this from CBS News. Uh, Mr. Obama had chosen the head of the Chicago public school system, Arnie Duncan, as his education secretary, and they had worked to focus, focus more on school children and less on the adults running the schools. Unions bad. Private reforms good. The comments came after the excuse me, not all pri- they're not all private reforms, business model reforms. And and while we're in the education sector of the program, let me go ahead and say now that I wrote a thing a long time ago, 2005, a long time ago. I think it was 2005. It was a while ago. And it was called A Profit Without Honors. And it was all the reasons why I hate the business model of education. This is what Paulo Freire called the banking model of education, where the student is an empty vessel and the teacher is a, a, a container of knowledge and the teacher just fills up the student. That's not real education. That's training, okay? And if people want their children to be trained, they can send them to an obedience school, okay? I am not a trainer. I am an educator. And education follows a Socratic method whereby the teacher is responsible for asking difficult questions that cause the students to think and to examine their assumptions and to change the way they think and to realize new perspectives and get new pieces of information that will help them to understand the world as it really is. We'll get to that, Bertrand Russell. Oh, you're, that's going to be beautiful when you see the quote from Bertrand Russell later on. Uh! Anyway, back to the article. Um, the comments came after someone had pointed to comments Bush had made in April praising Duncan and saying the Obama administration had done a, quote, pretty good job on education policy. Because, uh, you know, again, Republicans are never supposed to praise Democrats and vice versa. And so here was Jeb Bush forced to go, yeah, some of the things Obama did were good, like education. Because... Education policy at the federal level is something that Republicans and Democrats generally really agree with each other on. Race to the top, which is Obama's plan, is not so different from No Child Left Behind. They both foster a business model that has to do with competition, and your school sucks and it should be closed down. 
and um, again, that's not how education should work. It should be, your school has problems. Let's see if we can figure out how to fix them. That would be an enlightened way of approaching education reform, not Michelle Rees, brouhaha, and hullabaloo about, this school sucks, we're going to close it down. And the parents in the neighborhood go, wait, there's a lot of things we like about this school, please don't close it. And she went, shut up, you suck, F you. And they closed it. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, we're seeing the exact same thing that we saw in Wisconsin now happening. The governor, Bobby Jindal, who's a jerk, this is from the Shreveport Times. He's got this new plan, uh, two acts. Act 1 deals with changing tenure laws, establishing new hiring and firing policies, removing a statewide salary schedule, removing the jurisdiction of school boards over teacher employment, and redefining the role of local school superintendents when the Constitution says bills should have one object. Now, okay, this tenure thing, okay, uh, and seniority pay scales. I suppose if you, uh, okay, I understand that, uh, some people don't like the seniority pay scale because in a lot of school districts around the country, including the one I work with, your pay is determined by how long you've been with the district and how much education you have. And that's kind of problematic, I suppose, because it means that you don't have to necessarily get better at teaching. You just have to be doing well enough to not get fired. And then every year you'll get a raise. Now, that's, I suppose, kind of messed up because it, it, it maybe it should be based on how well you're teaching. But the question I have is, and this is a very serious question, and it's a very deep question, and it's a very difficult question, and I have yet to hear a very good answer. How are you going to determine who's teaching well? Because most of us get observed at maximum once or twice a year. And even if you have a, a, an administrator observing the teacher, let's say 10 times a year, and you look at test scores, is that really a fair way of saying this teacher's good or this teacher's bad? I don't think that it is, especially when, okay, let's look at it this way. Let me give you a concrete example using my life, because that's the thing I know better than anyone else, and I know better than anything else is my life, okay? I teach students in several classes. I teach a creative writing class. I teach AP English, which is a sort of, you know, end of high school, very motivated students. Um, and I teach a class called Interdisciplinary Poetics, which is about hip-hop culture and rap music. Uh, and I teach some other literature courses in there as well. If a student has had really crummy teachers in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, and tenth grade, and then gets to me in eleventh grade and he hates school and he doesn't like to learn, there's only so much I can do with that student. Okay, And that's assuming very generously in the business model format that all those other teachers were crappy. Okay, Because say what you want, I'm a good teacher. I'm a damn good, I'm a great teacher. And I challenge anyone to challenge me on that point. The question is, how do I prove that I'm a great teacher? Because as I've said, my great teaching doesn't always manifest itself as great test scores. So if the kid, and, and so let's, let's even step back from that. That's, that's the business model question I have. If all those other teachers were terrible, and then the kid comes to me, the, 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 the response, I'll tell you what the response is going to be. The response from the business model advocates is, well, we test the kid at the beginning of the year we, he spends with you, and we test him at the end of the year, and then how much value is added in that time. That, the difference in his score shows how much value you've added to that student. But I hate to tell you this. A lot of the value I add to students' lives cannot be measured on a standardized test. Most of the time, the feedback I get from students actually says explicitly, I don't know what I learned from you in terms of the core curriculum content, 
but I can tell you, Mr. P, without a doubt, you have shown me the way to exist in the world and deal with difficult people and not let the petty things overwhelm you and try to make a difference in the world. And you taught me about East Timor and all these other things that don't really have to do necessarily with these core standards. Now, obviously, that's not to say the core standards are irrelevant, because I'm an English teacher in order to help people do literary analysis. And I'm very eager to see the results of my AP students on the AP exam, which are going to come in July. But that's not the only thing I'm in the classroom to do. And I hate to think that my pay is suddenly going to become dependent on how well my students do on all these standardized tests and how well I can make it look like I'm doing certain things in order to please administrators, um, which might make my genuine teaching efforts suffer or at least diminish. Um, and I talk to my AP students this year a lot, and I'm going to be talking to other students in the future a lot, too, because the AP kids told, a, told me point blank this was very helpful to them. There's a question about truth versus money. They're usually not in the same place. And at certain points, you have to prioritize money. That's why I start the economic section with the Wu-Tang Clan song, Cash Rules Everything Around Me, because it does. Well, almost everything. Because at other points in your life, you have to go toward truth. And ultimately, I am in the classroom because of truth. I am not there because of money. If I wanted money, if money were my priority, there are a hundred other jobs I could find that would probably pay me more. It's not about money for me. It's about, I'm a teacher, I tell the students all the time, I'm a teacher for three reasons. June, July, and August. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, no, I'm a teacher because I want to inspire them to pursue truth and to make a positive difference in the world so we can make real change in this country in the way that William Lloyd Garrison made change and Frederick Douglass made change and Harriet Tubman made change and Harvey Milk made change and Elizabeth Cady Stanton made change and, you know, uh, novelists from Virginia Woolf to Honorated Balzac to Chinua Achebe to, you know, a hundred other people you could name. They all tried to make change in our society. That's what I want to see. I am in school and I am a teacher in order to bring about some nonviolent revolutionary change that will uplift the consciousness of everybody involved and we can improve the material existence of human beings and other species on this planet. Uh, and literary analysis is a means to that end. And it's worthwhile for its own sake and I want to improve and enrich the lives of my students themselves as well. Um... I don't even know where I went with that. Anyway, that's what we call in the AP class a whatever that was. Because one day, we were off on all these different tangents, and this student goes, uh, blah, 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 and, and one kid didn't know what a tangent was, and I was like, you haven't been paying attention to geometry class. So we talked about tangents, and then they were like, okay, well, anyway, whatever that was, and they said, it's called a tangent. And I said, actually, you know what? It's not, because if you look in geometry, a tangent is a straight line, and that thing we were just talking about was going in all sorts of different directions, so it's much more accurate to call it a whatever that was, which is a series of words connected by dashes, and what do we call that, kids? And we had just studied Beowulf, so they all said in unison, a kenning! And it was a great moment. They actually applauded and it was so beautiful. I felt so happy in that moment. Anyway, at the end of that, whatever that was, uh, Louisiana governor proposes major education changes. Here's the second part of his new change proposal. Act 2 creates a statewide voucher program. Ding, 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 ding. Privatization. Paying tuition and fees to private and religious schools with funding from public education's minimum foundation program. It includes a new category of charter schools to be created by newly created charter authorization organizations. <sighs> There's a lot I could say about charter schools another time if people are interested. For now, all I will say is 
the major headache I have with these private, first of all, there's no accountability because there's very minimal accountability. Fine. Maybe there's not none. Um, but there's very minimal accountability. And a lot of times these private schools are not subject to the same, for instance, standardized testing that the public schools are. So it's a double whammy. And it's easy to believe the conspiracy theorists who say the whole privatized voucher charter school system is a way to erode the public schools from within and destroy them. Now, I don't believe that that's the case. I think that a lot of people who support vouchers and privatized school systems and charter schools actually want what's better for kids. Um, but a lot of the effect that it has is that public schools are eroded and, and made worse. And, and they generally benefit wealthy people and poor people and end up going to worse schools. Um, meanwhile, there was a business tax. This was an interesting, we're going to end on a positive note here. Um, a new plan for business taxes in Nevada would help education funding. Uh, and this is from thestreet.com, uh, whatever, some economic f monitoring thing. Businesses that take in more than $1 million annually would be subject to a 2% margins tax under an initiative filed Wednesday by a coalition of labor groups seeking to raise money for Nevada's public schools. Yay! Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Absolutely, why not? This is a broad-based business tax that makes sense for the state, said Lynn Warren, president of the Nevada State Education Association. Quote, we cannot keep cutting funds to education and not expect our kids to suffer as a result. Amen, sister! I think it's probably a woman. Um, yeah, we should totally do that everywhere. They can afford it. Businesses that make more than $1 million annually, they can afford to pay a little more for school. Can't they? By definition, they're taking in more than $1 million annually. Give some of it back to the schools. Yes, absolutely. Do it. Do it. Do it everywhere. We should do that in Wisconsin. Oh, wait. Our jerk-faced governor would never let it happen. Let's talk about something happier now, like killer robots. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all Bender, wake up! I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? This is the part of the show where we talk about killer robots and other interesting stuff that goes in the miscellaneous file. Uh, yeah, I found out about, through an Economist article, which is very interesting, I'll talk about it in just a minute, uh, there's this organization called the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, and I love it, and people should... They, the world should take heed to what they say. Uh, yeah, so The Economist had this article. The, the headline was, With robot use on the rise, it's time to establish a set of ethical ground rules. And it's a very in-depth article. Uh, I, I don't know if I can recommend that everybody should read it, but if you're interested in how, not just the silly, like, over-the-top, okay, I like to make a lot of jokes, the killer robots are coming, that documentary film, Terminator 2, blah, blah, blah. But, but in terms of actually looking at how, especially autonomous robots are going to have the power to kill, this is an important question. And so the economists sort of wrestled with it. Now, they didn't come to any conclusions. All they said was, we need some ground rules. Um, but it's, it's a good way of looking at it. And they start where I would start, with Isaac Asimov. And the article says, the best-known set of guidelines for robo-ethics are the so-called three laws of robotics, coined by science fiction writer Isaac Asimov in 1942. The laws require robots to protect humans, to obey orders, and to preserve themselves in that order. Which, that's a fair way to 
put it. Uh, they're a little more specific than that, but whatever. Uh, unfortunately, the laws are of little use in the real world. Battlefield robots would be required to violate the first law. Moreover, Asimov's robot stories are fun precisely because they highlight the unexpected complications that arise when robots try to follow his apparently sensible rules. Now, brief tangent, or brief whatever that was, um, the movie iRobot sucks. If you have seen that movie and not read the book, stop what you're doing right now. Never speak of the movie again until you read the book. Because the the movie is so different from the book that whereas in most movie posters and trailers they say based on... Go away, planes! Uh, most of the time they say based on the book by Isaac Asimov. In this case, they had to write on the posters suggested by the book by Isaac Asimov because they're so different. The only real similarity is the name, and there's a brief mention in the movie of the three laws. But I'll give you an idea of what the book actually says in case you haven't seen uh, read the book and you have seen the movie. In the movie, there was one very interesting moment where some researcher or another was talking maybe to Will Smith, maybe to someone else. This is insane. I don't know if you can hear that or not, but it feels like there's like a squadron, like the Blue Angels are flying over Madison or something. It's nuts. Go away. Leave me alone. I'm that dude, I'm that farmer with a shotgun, like, hey, stinking revenueers, come and get me, my moonshine still. Anyway, um, what was that? Oh, yeah, so the very interesting part in iRobot is when there's some researcher talking about, we don't understand a lot of the things about how, why robots do what they do. And in the movie, they made it into this life and death struggle. There was this robot who kept, I did not kill him, and it was a bunch of hooey. And at the end, it became like, we're trying to save you from yourselves. Spoiler, sorry, I don't care, because that movie sucks so hard. Uh, Maddox, the greatest website in the world, he had a great summary review of the iRobot movie. It was Will Smith pissing on Asimov's grave. That's pretty much it. Um, and a whole bunch of product placement. Anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, so the, the one good part in the movie was when this one scientist says, we don't understand some things about how robots function. For instance, when a bunch of robots are in a dark space, they tend to stand near each other. That's fascinating, and we don't understand why. And that's fascinating. And the book is full of stuff like that. It's all about how do robots try to find loopholes and try to navigate these three rules that they're forced to comply. Kind of like in Robocop when he's got the three directives. And then number four says classified. And I'm not going to tell you a spoiler for that because that's a good movie. It's probably the best movie ever made about uh, how human beings relate to robots and how robots relate to human beings. Because directive four is the... it's. It's amazing. It's groundbreaking. The first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, my God. And the older I get, because the first time I saw it, I was like 16 years old. The older I get, the more profound it becomes because it's so true. Directive 4 is the way things are. And it's the way things will be in the future, especially when these autonomous robots go online. Ah, you like how I came back to the article here? So the article says, uh, it says a lot of things, but the most important article later on, it says, Laws are needed to determine whether the designer, the programmer, the manufacturer, or the operator is at fault if an autonomous drone strike goes wrong or if a driverless car has an accident. Now, I would argue that it's not about drone strikes going wrong. It's about drone strikes going right and killing innocent civilians because it's okay for us to kill innocent civilians because we accept that as collateral damage. That's not necessarily about drone strikes going wrong. That's about things happening exactly as they're supposed to, especially when, as we saw recently this week, the U.S. government is reclassifying anybody in the neighborhood as a, as a militant because they were hanging out near people they know to be terrorists, or we assume they know that they're terrorists, or whatever it is. It's ludicrous. Um, 
Anyway, in order to allocate responsibility, autonomous systems must keep detailed logs so that they can explain the reasoning behind their decisions when necessary. And as I would point out, this is likely to be protested by weapons manufacturers as so-called proprietary software, which is the same reason the United States, Diebold, won't release the software that they use for voting machines, so we can't get a paper trail of that. What makes us think killer robots are going to be any different? and or classified by governments that are using these robots. I mean, they won't even tell us, the CIA won't even, the, the U.S. government won't even admit to doing these drone strikes until very recently. Uh, so how are we supposed to have any accountability for it? That's the first step is to get them to talk about it and demand this sort of accountability. Uh, this has implications for system design. It may, for instance, rule out the use of artificial neural networks, decision-making systems that learn from example rather than obeying predefined rules. And I would certainly prefer that we not have artificial neural networks on any robot that has the ability to kill things because then i mean even if we do set up very clear guidelines and make sure that they don't ever make mistakes which i don't you know okay let me let me say this and as we move into the second hour of the show <laughs> this is what you get when i have time now people i got plenty of time i'm not in a rush to get done with this because i what am i doing next i don't have anything to do for two hours when i'm going to meet someone for a drink who cares i'll keep talking all day and some of you might be like yeah keep talking all day others are like ah, wrap it up b you see that Chappelle show thing with the wrap it up machine and you start playing the music as like on the academy awards and people are talking for too long and the music starts wrap it up you better wrap up that gavel b <laughs> um what was i saying yeah, okay, so there's a school of thought which says, and this is actually very interesting, this is one of those moments where I will step back and say, okay, I accept that that's a good point. Um, the, the, the point that some people make is that human beings uh, sometimes lose their minds in stressful situations. And some people point to My Lai as an example of that, the My Lai massacre that happened during the Vietnam War. Um, some people point to uh, other massacres and killings that have happened in Afghanistan recently. There was a U.S. soldier who kind of went nuts and killed a bunch of people. Innocent civilians. Like, people sleeping in their homes. Like, not in any kind of... It was not a combat situation at all. It was the middle of the night. He went to their homes. He shot them dead. It was a massacre. It was a slaughter. And the and the military is sort of walking this fine line about, oh, well, he went crazy, but not in any way we could detect. And he wasn't crazy when we brought him over there. Uh, but, and, and, but, but he wasn't made crazy by being in war because we do everything necessary to keep soldiers sane. So it was all him. Uh, they don't ever want to admit any culpability for any of the stress or their failure to deliver mental health services to soldiers who might be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder while in theater, whatever. So the, the, the point that some um, robot enthusiasts make is that robots won't do that. They will never succumb to post-traumatic stress disorder. They will never... Uh, behave irrationally because their they brains can't handle it. And I think that's a valid point. I think that's a very interesting point to make. So it's possible in certain theories that we would have fewer civilians killed because we won't have the need for revenge and we won't have the stress getting to someone. And a robot won't be distraught if he looks and sees his robot buddy getting shot to death on the battlefield. It will just be a reconfiguration of ones and zeros and he will just go, oh, okay, now we have one less soldier on the battlefield. Let's rethink our position and our tactics or whatever it is. So that's a good point. I like that. However, robots also cannot respond to, please don't kill me, I'm a civilian. Yeah? And we again, Robocop, man, the Ed 209, something goes wrong, what do you do? Can you pull the plug? Probably not. And, and, and so 
I, I, that makes me very nervous. And, and I don't know which of those is, is a, you know, the positive outweighs the benefit. I don't think it does. Um, because the negative possibility of robots, um, behaving in a way that we consider irrational, but they consider very rational, that split is very dangerous. And I think it's more dangerous than the tricky business of human nature being relied upon, especially in moments of shell shock or battle fatigue or whatever it is, post-traumatic stress disorder, as we now call it. And finally, in the miscellaneous file, uh, I think it was John Broad that sent me this, Kafka's final absurdist tale plays out in Tel Aviv. Franz Kafka published just a few short stories, and we talked about Franz Kafka a couple weeks ago. Uh, he published just a few short stories and a novella during his lifetime, yet he was considered one of the 20th century's most influential writers. The rest of his work was largely kept secret, and literary scholars have long wondered what gems they might find among Kafka's papers. The answer may ultimately lie on Tel Aviv's Spinoza Street. Spinoza! Thank you, Diane. There you go. You happy? Spinoza! inside joke that's the purpose of this podcast is for me to send inside jokes to my wife but it's kind of a circuitous route for these inside jokes to go through the internet via itunes through potterator onto my website and then into your itunes uh yeah the answer may ultimately lie on tel aviv spinoza street inside a small squat apartment building covered with dirty pinkish stucco that looks like it's seen better days the story of how kafka's papers made their way into an apartment owned by a self-professed cat lady eva hoff sounds like a story only kafka himself could have written the state of israel and hoff who's in her late 70s are locked in a battle over those papers and hoff has not been willing to allow outsiders to see them so the whole story is on this uh, website uh, from NPR.org, and uh, it's a very interesting story, so check it out. But we're running way long here, so we gotta get to hip hop! Yeah, I put a post up on the blog a while back about how, in my opinion, the best hip hop in the world right now is coming out of Britain. And I've been accused recently of being a Britophile or an Anglophile, um, and it's true. I, I I really think, God, there's those planes again. Go away! And I can't even see them, man. They're invisible planes. I can only hear them. Now, that's, some people would say that's because there's a bunch of trees right outside my window, and I can't see much of the sky. But I think it's because the government has invisible planes. you got to be able to hear that. And some people might go, well, Eric, why don't you just do the podcast when there aren't planes flying overhead? Or pause the show? No, I don't do things that way, Lisa. Why don't you just cook less? Um, okay, so, in my opinion, the best hip-hop right now, or I should say about three years ago, the best hip-hop was coming out of uh, Britain. Um, because there's a number of artists I really love. Uh, Double Edge, Maestro, uh, Dirty Diggers, uh, The Streets, I'm willing to admit is good. I'm not a huge fan of them, but whatever. Um... And there's others. And I've been very impressed with uh, a lot of British rappers I've heard lately because, and I'm, I'm probably hearing the most underground artists coming out of Britain, so I think, oh, everything out of Britain is great. In the same way that, you know, I see certain comedians, Eddie Izzard and, and, and Ricky Gervais, is, they're the, that's the humor that's coming out of Britain. Well, it's some of the humor that's coming out of Britain, and I'm probably just not tuned in to a lot of the crap that's coming out of Britain as well. So I admit that I have some, you know, confirmation bias going on there. But uh, a lot of my favorite rappers these days are British rappers, and today I'm going to tell you about one of them called Brain Tax. He only ever put out three albums, but they're awesome. Uh, he he had one track where he talked about where he was growing up, and it, the whole track says something about um, 
where I grew up was a very rural place. Didn't have a telephone, didn't have a television, didn't have a telegraph. Uh, all this stuff about how he grew up pretty poor, but we had everything we needed. And the whole song is about like what you want and what you need are two different extremes. I hit you somewhere in the middle, like the heart and spleen. I think that's a different song actually, but whatever. He he has a, a lot of his songs are about that, just about like his everyday life. And he has one called uh, "You Should Speak Your Mind," or maybe that's not what it's called. But the chorus is "You Should Speak Your Mind, Open Up Your Heart, See That I'm a Good Find." Um, I'm not into playing games, and if you wait too long, it'll be too late. And it's all about just relationships, you know, and like games that people play when they're dating and stuff like that. And he had another song called "Duve," and it's like all we really need is a duve. All we need is a new day. And so some of it's silly. A lot of it's very serious. He has one called uh, In the Grip Again and one called The Grip, which is about the power of Western governments and militaries, uh, especially with regard to Israel and Palestine. And he had one called Syriana Style, which is about the Iraq War. And he has one called Retail, which is about consumerism. And so he has some really good songs about serious stuff. And he has other songs that are about sort of everyday life and silly stuff. Um, And it's a really good blend of things. And so I'm going to play you a clip from one track that he did called Monsoon Funk, uh, which is sort of a freestyle type of thing, but he's talking about some things as well. I don't know if it's an actual freestyle, but it certainly sounds kind of freestyle-ish. And uh, it just sounds good, and his music's produced really well, and he has guest stars. That's how I found out about Double Edge, and then I realized Maestro is on one of his tracks as well. Uh, so here's a bit from Monsoon Funk. Fair to say, brain tax is back Though I've been here a while operating the DAP Mixing down half the tracks, there's the new British classics The reason heads buying homegrown stay classic People ask, what's the point of the name? So don't ask me anymore, cause I'm about to explain It goes one for the treble, two for the four And I'm Yorkshire to the bone, I don't copy New York Man, it's all about being yourself in my world This is monsoon funk with a twist of lightning Skills deep, man, levels we attain are frightening On the beat and not like feds on the street Don't control your soul, got half 50 kilos of thought in the track And the point of the name is we can all get busy if we use our brains I love logic, it's what I recommend to maintain And stay sharp though, all of the rest I ain't drawing conclusions, I'm writing the test And if you don't wanna listen, you can switch off I can't be just party arty, but that's not how I get the party started My brain is now in the tax bracket Anyway, um, yeah, and for those who wonder, uh, I do do that. <laughs> do do. Yeah, you're welcome, Stu. Inside jokes for everybody. Hey, Chinny. Yeah! Um. <laughs> I've got problems. Thanks for the drink, Burr Salem, by the way. Uh, anybody else want to shout out? <laughs> you don't need to even do anything. I'll just throw an inside joke out for you. Hey, Turtle502, how's your bed? Hey, Bongo! I don't know who you are on Facebook! Anyway... Uh, Naruto! There you go, GH Rocker. Anyway, um, what am I talking about? Yeah, uh, I, whenever I play that hip-hop stuff, I turn the volume way up, because I usually love it. I always love it. I wouldn't play stuff I didn't love. Brain Tax, check them out. There's a video, uh, for Anti-Gray, which was the first time I ever heard of Brain Tax, and I fell in love with them instantly, and, uh, so I'll put that up there as well, um, on the website, and so check them out, Brain Tax, is three albums, the first one's called Biro Funk, uh, it's good, it's not, not nearly as best, his second one is called Panorama, and then his third one's called My Last and Best Album, which is his best album, um, and unfortunately it's his last, like he retired, and his last song on his last album is called Last One Out, Turn Out the Lights, and it's, it's kind of a depressing song, because it's all about, the chorus says something about, um, as your fairy tales and dreams come true, you'll be fighting over food and paper and there's nothing anyone can do and it's all about how like we're screwed and the ocean levels are rising and we're all going to kill each other with nuclear weapons and there's no point in trying to resist it anymore so screw this i'm out and he left the game 
And that's a pretty sad point to be on, especially because some of his other songs are all about like the need for us to rise up and make change and, you know, take positive action. And um, yeah, I, I hope at some point he realizes that he shouldn't give up the game and he should come back and make more music, especially because, and this is a point I want to make with anger, because Michael Franti was part of a group. Someday I'll talk about him. Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, great hip hop back in the day. He went off in a more folky you know, he put out an album called The Sound of Sunshine, which is fine. I don't have a problem with folk music, really. Um, I think there's a place in the world for music that affirms people's souls and helps us feel good when we're feeling sad. But I also think there's a place in the world, and there's not nearly enough of it, of music that responds with righteous indignation to the evil and the selfishness and the ignorance of the world and that helps to support those of us who need the fire and the fury at our backs and not always, you know, happy, soothing music to help us unwind after a hard day. We do need music to help us unwind after a hard day, but we also need music to play loudly at the beginning of the day to get us fired up in order to go into the belly of the beast and confront the demons of ignorance and frustration that we are going to come into contact with. And I get mad when people like Braintax say, well, there's no point, I'm just going to give up on this angry, you know, aggressive stuff, and he gave up on all music. And, and you know, Michael Franti said, oh, you you know, it's very easy to make an angry song that's going to get people riled up, but it's harder to make something that will soothe people's souls. And I, I look, I understand that at the end of the day, what we really need in the world is more love and more compassion and loving kindness and all that. But sometimes I need I need energy to go into the classroom and say, no, it is not okay to be ignorant and, you know, self-interested always and all the rest of it. And, and I, I really get frustrated at musicians who... Give me a little of that and then say, okay. And they're not the only, he's, you know, Consolidated did the same thing. And ministry said that they're done because George Bush Jr. lost or he, you know, he's out of office now. And uh, maybe in that case, I'm willing to say, all right, because they only seem to make good music when Republicans were in power. Um, so whatever. Uh, yeah, I could go on, but brain tax, check him out. Listen to anti gray, uh, which is a good starting point for him. His last and best album is called his last and best album. And, uh, yeah. He's good. Listen to Brain Tax. Let's talk quarter of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting because the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Bertrand Russell was born in 1872, died in 1970. He was a British mathematician and logician who dedicated much of his time to anti-war activism and making the world a better place. There's a really good book called Logic Comics, which is about his math and logical philosophy, especially um, his epistemology research. And, um, yeah, he is a fascinating guy. I don't think there's a good documentary film about his life, although there should be, and there probably will be soon, because that's the... Uh, there's some good documentaries being made lately about people. There's one good. There's a really good one about Norman Finkelstein. I don't remember what it's called, um, but he's an interesting guy. You should definitely watch that documentary about him. There's also a really good documentary called Manufacturing Consent about Noam Chomsky. That's just I, that's such a great film that I assume that everyone in the world has seen it, but I shouldn't assume that. Manufacturing Consent: The Life and Work of Noam Chomsky is an amazing movie. If you've never seen it, you are missing out on one of the on. on probably one of the three most important documentary films ever made. It's available on Hulu. You can watch it all, uh, along with The Corporation, which is one of the other three. Anyway, um, yeah, there should be a movie about Bertrand Russell, but so far as I know, there isn't. Anyway, uh, what there is, uh, is, and I hate that construction. I hate when people do that. Uh, using the same word twice right next to each other. What I do do is, <laughs> do do, uh, what there is, is, that's so stupid. We got to figure out ways around that. All right. <clears throat> 
But I am happy to see that there is a video interview uh, that was that took place in 1959. He did an interview with the BBC program Face to Face. And the final question, uh, he is asked about what he would want to say to his descendants. And so I'm going to play you the clip of what he says in response to that question. One last question. Suppose, Lord Russell, this film were to be looked at by our descendants like a Dead Sea Scroll in a thousand years' time. What would you think it's worth telling that generation about the life you've lived and the lessons you've learned from it? I should like to say two things. One intellectual and one moral. The intellectual thing I should want to say to them is this. When you are studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Never let yourself be diverted either by what you would wish to believe or by what you think could have beneficent social effects if it were believed. But look only and solely at what are the facts. That is the intellectual thing that I should wish to say. The moral thing I should wish to say to them is very simple. I should say, love is wise, hatred is foolish. So there you go. Um, hey, 1959 BBC audio engineers, can't you get a noise filtering mic? What's wrong with you people? Oh, wait, you don't have that technology yet, do you? All right, that's it, people. Uh, 80 minutes. That's, I think, enough for one week. <laughs> Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Shout-outs this week to Turtle502 and his broken-up bed, as well as Stu and John Mouse and everyone else who sent me stuff that I haven't had time to look at yet. Also, Burr Salem, he will have brought me a drink by the time you hear this. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I'm a busy, I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles you think are worth looking at. FBESP.org is my website. ESP at FBESP.org. You can also find me on Twitter at DukeScath or Facebook, Eric S. Piotrowski, and all that stuff. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.